You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now let's read that psalm together. If you're using the church Bible, it's on page 623, Psalm 100. And 25. Uh, Many years ago, uh, I don't know whether I had a specific reason for doing this or not, but uh, I did look up what women wanted uh, from a husband in marriage. And uh, at least in the days when it was a relevant factor to me, uh, security was number one. And I think we're all conscious of how important that is for children as they grow up, that they know they are secure, uh, that there is a consistency of love in the way in which their parents rear them. And then when you get a bit older, I remember people used to say when you get older, uh, security is, uh, is a big thing. And uh, when you listen to radio interviews about, uh, you know, one thing and another, interviews with older people, financial security... Is a, is a very big thing for them. And this psalm uh, is about security. It is uh, psalm number six in the Songs of Ascent that we are studying together these evenings, uh, psalms that were composed by different poets, almost certainly at different times and places, but have been brought together uh, by the editor of the book of Psalms, perhaps a previous editor for pilgrims to sing as they made their pilgrimage from the country villages and towns to the great feasts in Jerusalem for those days when in in an intensive way they were engaged in worship and fellowship and heard the word of God Uh, If you think about David's time, um, how did people keep the Sabbath day? Uh, They didn't apparently go to church because there weren't churches. Uh, We know almost nothing about the, the worship practices of local communities, but we do know the the opportunities for what today would be called big church. And we remember how our Lord Jesus, when he was 12 years old, he had been taken to Little Church, the synagogue in Nazareth. And then when he was 12 years old, I think how excited he must have been to go to Big Church. And perhaps when he was going on his first pilgrimage to Jerusalem with Joseph and Mary and other townspeople, uh, these Psalms would be the ones that they would sing on the way. Um, Unlike modern parents, sometimes even modern Christian parents who are going on a long journey, they didn't sing, one man went to mow, went to mow the meadow, two men went to mow. They would instruct their children in godliness. And uh, we've come to the sixth of these Psalms of Ascent, 125, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, 
but endures forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people both now and forevermore. The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous, for then the righteous might use their hands to do evil. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart, but those who turn to crooked ways the Lord will banish with the evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. If you, by any chance, have an Anglican background rather than a Presbyterian one, you may have heard these 15 psalms referred to as the gradual psalms. And they were originally called the gradual psalms because of this idea of a gradient, the sense in going up to Jerusalem as a kind of picture of the spiritual inward pilgrimage in relationship to God, it was anticipated that you would rise higher and higher and higher. But there is also a different sense, actually, a much more modern sense to the word gradual, isn't there? When you say, I did it gradually, you don't mean so much that you kept going higher and higher. What you really mean is that you did it steadily, and you did it slowly, and you made gradual advance, little by little. And there's a very deep sense, I think, in which these Psalms, 15 of them, are structured in such a way as to underscore for us that the advance we make spiritually in relationship to the Lord and to His ways with us is characteristically a gradual advance. Indeed, the Scriptures seem to suggest that sudden and instantaneous advance in the Christian life may be something that we have to look at with a little suspicion. Remember the parable Jesus tells about the sower and the seeds that he throws around in different soils, and in one of those soils there is almost instantaneous growth, but the growth disappears almost as quickly as it had appeared, and the reason is that the seed was sown on rocky soil. That is soil where there was a substratum of rock underneath that because of the chemical uh, changes that took place would produce very sudden growth that would never last because it wasn't possible to put down deep roots. And these Psalms wonderfully instruct us, it seems to me, in the way in which the Lord wants to put down ever-deepening roots. That's what gives the plant of the Christian life, real stability and security. And I think it's one of the reasons, as we've noticed once or twice, that as Alec Motier suggests, these psalms may appear in groups of three. The first of the series began in stress and difficulty. The third of the series, Psalm 
122 brought the psalmist to a sense of peace. 123 also begins with stress and difficulty. 125 brings the psalmist to a sense of security. And there is this sense in these psalms, as I think I said last time, in which we're making advance not by a straight line, ever-ascending graph, but by going round a kind of spiral staircase in which we seem to return to roughly the same point, and yet it's true that we have somehow or another reached a slightly higher level. And so it is in the Christian life. The Lord takes us through experiences. We look back, we thank God that He has brought us through them, but He wants to take us, in a sense, nearer, higher, to press in ever more deeply to His Spirit. So, it's interesting, the first time the cycle came round, the psalmist knows a sense of security in Jerusalem. But the second time the cycle comes round, the psalmist is speaking about security in the middle of conflict. And that is actually a higher position. You know, it's one thing to feel secure when you sense that all the trouble is past and you can say, thank God He brought me through that. The storm has been calmed and life is going on in a relatively tranquil way. But it is another thing, isn't it, to know deep security when you actually sense that you are surrounded by enemies and opposition or facing pressure and oppression and difficulties. To sense security in the midst of it is, in a sense, an indication of an advance that's taken place in the Lord's dealings with our hearts. And so, there is this cyclical movement, there is this movement around the spiral staircase throughout this whole experience of the Word of God dealing with the psalmist, the people of God encouraging him as a pilgrim, the sense of the Lord's presence in worship. It's almost as though God insists, no matter where we have reached spiritually, He insists on going down deeper in order to build us up higher. Don't know if this illustration will help. I can imagine someone in the congregation at some time or another bought an old house. They walked into the house, and it had the most ghastly, flowery wallpaper that was put there in 1949 when the family had saved up some money at the end of the Second World War. And uh, you're a young couple, and you decide that wallpaper is the first thing that will go. And so, uh, you get stuck in one Tuesday night when you come home from work, and as you're scraping away, you say, oh no. Why? Because there's another layer of ghastly, flowery wallpaper underneath, and so you set two to the end of the week. And as you go on, you, you keep on discovering there is yet another layer. I thought when I got through the third layer, surely I'm finished. But there's layer after layer after 
layer. And if you are really a perfectionist, you want to get right down to the bare wall. And the Christian life is like that. Uh, Every single stage, God is stripping away the wallpaper, and you feel that you have made advance, and He comes again, and He strips away the wallpaper because He wants to get right down to the foundation in order to build you anew. The wonderful thing about the Lord, of course, is He is simultaneously able to put on the new wallpaper while He's stripping off the old. He's able to do construction work even in the midst of the deconstruction work that He is engaged in. And so, it shouldn't surprise us if the Scriptures keep coming back to these fundamental themes that God wants to change us by deconstructing us. He wants to make us strong by exposing us to situations in which we feel weak. He wants to build up our security in Him by putting us in situations where we feel very insecure in ourselves. And this is a psalm about exactly how the Lord does that. It can be summarized, I think, probably in just a few words. He speaks about the Lord's protection. He speaks about the Lord's limitations. And He speaks about the way in which He was drawn to further intercession. So, let's look at these three things that emerge in the course of this psalm. He's conscious, first of all, verses 1 and 2, of the Lord's protection. The picture, of course, is from inside Jerusalem. Uh, There He is. He has come to the destination point in the pilgrimage. He's, He's looking out from the temple precincts in Jerusalem. What does he see. Well, he says, what a picture this is of those who trust in the Lord. As solid, as lasting as Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, that endures forever. And then as he looks out, he sees those mountains, hills that surround Jerusalem. And he says, it's not only that I I feel that my security in the Lord is like the steadfastness of this hill on which God has built this city. But round the city is posted these sentries that are perpetually on guard. And so, he's trying to express to us this wonderful sense that God is not only for us, which was what he had emphasized in Psalm 124, but the God who is for us is also with us. And in a sense, that discovery is a further advance. It's one thing to know that God is for you, but the God who is for you, he is saying, is also the God who is with you. That's the principle of the incarnation, isn't it? 
That's one of the things that makes such a radical difference when the apostles and the early Christians understood this. They knew that God had been for them. Now they had experienced Emmanuel, that God had come to be actually with them. I remember in a very difficult situation in a church, people coming to me and saying to me, I'm, I'm 100% for you, and I'm totally behind you. And because I knew them, I said with a smile, you know, I would feel very much more secure if out of that 100% that's behind me, you could each put 5% in front of me and to the side of me. People can be for something that they're not actually with. You can be for somebody at a distance rather than with somebody in the trouble. And this is what he's discovered. This is the sense he has in these centuries that surround uh, Jerusalem, that the Lord is not only for him, but the Lord who is for him is actually with him. Those were actually, I think, if I'm right, John Wesley's last words. His friends gathered round as he was dying. He said, but best of all, God is with us. God is with us. This is surround protection. He has your back in the language of today. He is accompanying you as you move forward. He is before you as well as behind you. There is nowhere you can go, but the Lord has promised to be with you. We sometimes speak about God's omnipresence and sometimes about God's covenant presence, but this is God's surround presence. He is your defense. He is the guardian of your back. He is the one who walks with you into the future. And this is the security that the child of God has. And the very thing that Jesus promised, Emmanuel promised to the apostles as he sent them out. Go into all the world, preach the gospel, baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and I will be with you always to the end of the age. And so we live as Christian believers. That's where the Lord wants to bring us so that we live every moment of every day subliminally and frequently, very consciously, in the presence of the Lord. I remember as a teenager uh, picking up that famous little book by Brother Lawrence, entitled, The Practice of the Presence of God. The title is actually better than the book, and I think it was the title that helped me and has been a help to me 50 years now to live the Christian life practicing the presence of the Lord. That's what keeps you stable when people around you have become unstable. 
That, in a sense, is one of the hallmark differences between the Christian and the non-Christian. The Christian lives in the presence of the Lord. The Christian knows that nothing can come to him or to her from the side or behind or from the front without, first of all, the Lord Himself saying, I give you permission to be here. And of course, it's what He comes on to in verses 3 and the verses that follow, not only conscious of the Lord's protection, but conscious that because of the Lord's presence, the Lord also provides points of limitation. Of course, the great illustration of this in the Old Testament Scriptures is in 2 Kings 6, isn't it? When Elisha's little servant boy goes out in in the morning, out to get the milk and the rolls for the great prophet, and he, he looks up, and there is the army of the king of Aram surrounding where Elisha is, about to swoop in and take his master. He, he runs home. He tells his master that the game is up. They are lost. There is this vast army surrounding them. And Elisha takes his servant boy out, and he prays, O oh Lord, open the young man's eyes. And he sees that the hills are full of the chariots of the Lord. And in the midst of this mighty army, Elisha and the little fellow are absolutely secure. And he wants to explain how this works in verse 3, because in its very nature, protection implies that we need protected from something or somebody. So, he is speaking about situations in which the Christian believer will experience trials, opposition, perplexity, difficulty, difficulties that take us way beyond our comfort level. And where is our security? Our security lies in this, he says, verse Three, the scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous, for then the righteous might use their hands to do evil. It's actually the Old Testament's version of what the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, isn't it? That God will never bring us into a level of testing that either we are not able to endure or for which He will create some way of escape. The Lord has this power to delimit the powers of darkness and evil. Remember how that was the case in Job. God, as it were, permitted uh, Satan virtually to destroy Job, but he drew a line in the sand and said, beyond that point, you may not go. And of course, one of the wonders of the book of Job is this. You ask, uh, ultimately, why does Job suffer? His friends come forward with all their explanations, but the ultimate explanation is he suffers for the glory of God, 
doesn't he? And there is this sense sometimes in the Christian life we always look to find reasons for our suffering, reasons for the struggles, and at the end of the day, we need to be anchored in this, that if I have surround security, if there is nothing that comes to me without, as it were, having entry permission from the Lord Himself, then every single difficulty I face, trial and opposition I experience, I may experience this in His presence with His security and for His glory. And again and again, this is a lesson the Scriptures want to teach us, because whenever we find ourselves faced with opposition or trial, one of its characteristics is, of course, that it's always bigger than we feel we can handle. You see, as soon as we introduce this notion that the Lord would never allow these things unless He intended it for His glory, and He will restrain these things lest we lose sight of His glory. What do we discover? We discover His glory is bigger than all oppression, and by His grace, it makes us bigger and taller in the sense that we feel we can stand on Mount Zion, and we are surrounded by the sentries of the hills that surround Jerusalem. It is a magnificent picture of the ways in which the Lord delimits what evil can do. Why does He even do that? That's a, that's a question, isn't it? Why does, why does God bring us into these cycles in which there are struggles and, and opposition and conflicts? The answer is that this is the way He strengthens us, isn't it? Remember how He says in Hebrews 12, that every trial, every element of suffering the Christian believer goes through has the function of strengthening him. Suffering, to change the metaphor as the author of Hebrews does, is God's gymnasium where He stretches us in order that we may become more supple and stronger. The one sport in which I have a sufficient interest to know people who play it at a very high level happens to be golf. I remember how startled I was when a friend I have who plays professional golf on the PGA Tour in the United States described his day in a tournament. Arrive at the course two hours early, spend at least an hour in the gym, What's he doing? Stretching his muscles, making himself over the season increasingly flexible, able to adapt, less likely to suffer injury. And it's the same thing when God puts us into the gymnasium. This is, the, this is perhaps the deepest difference between the Bible's view of the believer's suffering and the world's view of the believer's suffering. 
to the world, it, it's a problem. Why should somebody as nice as you are go through such horrible things? But the Christian has an entirely different view. The Christian understands that the Lord is stretching us, training us, in order that we may be supple and pliable and sensitive to His will and able to serve Him for His glory. And so this is a very beautiful verse, isn't it? The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous, for then the righteous might use their hands to do evil. And it leads him to intercession. And the intercession is very interesting, isn't it? I wonder what you thought when we were singing this and reading this. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good. That uh, sounds quite a good political slogan, doesn't it? Do good to those who are good. Does it sound a bit like works righteousness? Be good to the good people. Do good to those who are good. Is, is this tit for tat? Is that how God is? You do good, and I'll do you good. And if you do more good, I'll do you more good. Is, uh, is this the divine quid pro quo? You give me a good life, and I'll give you good things. Well, you'll notice that the psalm actually defines those who are good. It describes them as those who trust in the Lord. It describes them in verse 3 as those who are righteous. And in the Bible, those who are righteous, we mustn't think about this through the lenses of being morally better than someone else. In the Bible, the righteous person is the person who has entered into a covenant relationship with the Lord. It's what God provides us with in His covenant grace that makes us righteous. Remember how this was true for Abraham. Abraham trusted in the covenant promise of the Lord, and he was counted as one of the righteous ones, one of those who lived in covenant fellowship with God, one of those who depended on the Lord, one of those whose heart was transformed, verse 4, to be upright, to be in line with the heart of God. In a sense, what this psalm means by good, to put it in New Testament terms, is somebody who has been justified by God's grace and regenerated by God's Spirit, a believer. And uh, so, what is the psalmist saying? He's saying, Father, you promised. This is all part of the covenant God had made with His people. I'm going to be your God, and I'm going to do good to you, and to the generations that follow after you as you trust in me. So, this is, this is absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with what people sometimes call works righteousness. This is not a matter of heaven helping those who help themselves. This is a matter of heaven helping the helpless. And as the helpless trust in Him, 
He transforms them, and He gives them the good. Remember how David puts it in Psalm 23, for all the ways I've messed up, I nevertheless know because of this grace relationship I have with the Lord that His goodness will pursue me all the days of my life. One of the older writers, John Flavel, says very beautifully, men and women in this world pursue the good and can never catch it. But the child of God is pursued by the good, and he or she can never escape it. That's what he's saying. He's saying, O Lord, in the midst of these difficulties, the scepter of the wicked, whatever particular situation that referred to, in the midst of all this pressure, as I'm living in a, in a country that seems to be marked by total disinterest in your ways and in your word, And don't you feel sometimes as you listen to the politicians that they themselves have a sense that the fabric of our society is actually disintegrating, and there's nothing that gives it an integer, that is a unifying reality. And none of them apparently bold enough to say that actually what made this country was the power of the gospel and how it influenced the country. And so, what do we have now? We need to get back to British values. And anyone who hears that inevitably asks the question, what actually are British values? Because we've actually been in the process of dismantling all of those British values. Now, notice, we are not Israel. This is not a promise to Great Britain but this is a promise to the believer that no matter how far down the context in which he or she lives, we may be bold enough to say to the Lord, because He has given us His covenant promise to be with us and in Christ His goodness to pursue us, O Lord, do good to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart, and then, of course, there's another side to that covenant. And it's, it's almost as though the psalmist at this point has started thinking in terms of Moses' exposition of the covenant in Deuteronomy 30. That's the chapter in which the Lord had said to, to those who live in this covenant fellowship, I will I'll never stop doing you good. But that's, that's the only way to enjoy that good. And if you turn away from that covenant fellowship, all that's left to you is disintegration and destruction. Those who turn to crooked ways, the Lord will banish with the evildoers. And of course, somebody might be tempted to say, somebody who didn't have much understanding of the Bible wasn't, oh dear, that's that Old Testament God again. But those are the very people often who tell you they love the Sermon on the Mount, aren't they? It's just they never read it to the end when Jesus says, depart from me, you evildoers. 
Isn't it C.S. Lewis that says that the most solemn words that can ever be pronounced on somebody who has refused to trust in Christ are the words, your will be done. It is to me one of the most amazing pieces of illogic that so many people who have had no interest in the Lord, no interest in His Word, no interest in godliness, whenever anyone in the family dies, they are in heaven. They are in heaven. But heaven has been the most distasteful place in all the world to them while they lived. Why would dying make any difference? And that's really what this psalm is saying. It's saying on the one hand, as we trust in the Lord, He gives us this security in the face of oppression and trial and difficulty. He restrains evil. And what a comfort this is when we feel we've had it up to here and we don't have any stamina left. And He says, child, this will not take you beyond my protection. You will be secure here. Trust in me rather than in yourself. But outside of that sphere of trust and love and the taste of his goodness is what Jesus called the outer darkness, the black hole where men who have lived without God die without God. And then, almost out of the blue, as though, as though this is such a solemn thought, this combination of thought, this, this living in the light of the, the outpouring of the goodness of God on him that, that highlights the darkness of the darkness of those who turn away from God. It's almost as though he's saying at the end of the psalm, I don't know what to say next. And so he says this, Shalom be upon Israel. Interesting, isn't it, how he keeps coming back to this? Remember I said a few weeks ago that I think the ironic benediction of Numbers chapter 6 is in the mind of the psalmist. He's going on pilgrimage. He doesn't hear the priest say at home, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. He hears that only in the place where the sacrifices for his sins have been made. And it's as though this dual sense of the security of God and the goodness with which he pursues the believer on the one hand, and this awful sense of the fate of those who turn away from the Lord simply make him run to the Lord and say to him, Lord, would you just pronounce that benediction on me one more time? At the end of the day, in the Christian pilgrimage, we're all really little boys and girls, aren't we? 
You know, one of the, the things about little children, they get fixated about things, don't they? You know, you want to read them a bedtime story, and they want to hear that bedtime story again, again, again. I remember uh, we had these flashcards. Uh, we had a set of flashcards of the story of Noah. And uh, I think it was Peter, our uh, second son, who was here this morning every single night. What would you like to hear? I'd like to hear the story of Noah. I'd like to hear the story of Noah. I'd like to hear if I hear of that guy Noah again. But you see it's reassuring, isn't it? It's like coming back to the place where you know that God is faithful and sure. His promises are real. And so I think in a sense, after all these, in a sense, staggering things that have been going through his mind, he's like a little child who who thinks, oh, just tell me, tell me the story of the ironic benediction again. There are all kinds of intricate little patterns in these 15 Psalms. It's one of the odd things, remember I said, that there's a, a Solomon Psalm in the middle, the one who, who built the temple in Jerusalem. And there are seven Psalms on each side, Two of those psalms are David's psalms. It's rather an odd thing. It surely can't be accidental that on either side of that psalm, on this side, the divine name Yahweh is used 24 times. And on the other side, the divine name Yahweh is used 24 times. It's almost as though as this little hymn book for special occasions was put together, that there are just all kinds of little attractive things for those who use them to notice, perhaps to help them find their way around it, to help them see what was absolutely central, the temple, to help them to see, as it were, before the temple and after the temple, the covenant Lord had promised to be present with them. And it's very interesting to me that in this psalm, that covenant name, the Lord, is used four times, like north and south and east and west, like height and length and breadth and depth of the love of God in Jesus Christ. We are encompassed by surround presence and security. And within that security, we find ourselves faced with overwhelming pressure. And we go to the Lord Jesus, who had his own version of the ironic blessing that he has pronounced on us in baptism in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we keep going back to Him and say to Him, I think maybe this is why the Apostle Paul is able to use baptism in different ways as a, an entry point to what it means to be a Christian. We want to say to Him, Lord Jesus, 
pronounce that benediction over me that was pronounced over me when I was baptized and I became part of this family to which I look back as the sign of all that you've done for me. Tell me that story one more time. And that's what he's saying here. Peace be upon Israel. Our Heavenly Father, sometimes we confess the the stretching in our life is more than we can bear. And sometimes we feel in our Christian life that surely the testings have come to an end. And yet you teach us in your word that the testings never come to an end until you have come to an end of transforming us into the likeness of our Savior Jesus Christ. We feel ourselves to be so weak. We drive or walk to church and we feel that there are so few of us in the midst of so many. We sometimes feel anxiety about the state of our nation. We feel the movement from Christians not only being allowed to profess their faith, but to act their faith out to a time when we will be allowed to profess our faith, but not to act upon it. And then some of us with naturally gloomy disposition tremble within that a day might come when we might no longer be able to profess our faith, far less act on it. And we pray, Lord, that those of us who are most fearful may sense the deepest security. And those who find ourselves most oppressed feeling that where we are, where we live in our situation, the scepter that reigns is a scepter of evil and wickedness and is against our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would teach us afresh that you are a sovereign Lord and that even in the worst of circumstances, you mean to do us much good. And so do do good to us, Lord, in our individual lives, in our families, and in this fellowship to which we belong and which we love. We pray that it may be a place where others can come with all their insecurities and find their security in Christ. We thank you that the name of the Lord is a strong tower, and to it people may run and be safe. And we thank you that there is no other name under heaven given among men in which we can be safe than the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we adore and worship you that we have come to faith in him. Lord, We know one another lovingly, but often superficially, knowing nothing of the struggles, knowing little of the life outside that each of us lives. 
And so, as we think of those we have greeted this evening and those whose presence we have recognized subliminally as we've worshipped together, those we sense who have been here, we pray for one another that you would keep us by your grace. And we pray this in our Savior's name. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.